Welcome to Deep Talk, the podcast for advanced English learners who are looking to explore something a little bit deeper. My name's Rhiannon and I'm an English teacher and coach. Each week, I invite a different guest onto the show and they choose a text or video they've really loved recently. Together, we talk about the ideas and we invite you to join in on social media. You'll find the link to the text we discuss in the description to this podcast, along with a link for the transcript, which will help you follow the twists and turns of our conversations. We'd always love to know what you think about a specific episode, topic, or text. So please send me a message either via Instagram at RhiannonELT or by email at info at RhiannonELT.com. You'll find the links to both of those in the description. The topic today is hard. I say that right at the beginning because I want you to be kind to yourself. If listening to a discussion on domestic abuse isn't what you need today, that is absolutely okay. Some of the things we discuss may be triggering, especially if you have your own experience of coercive control or domestic abuse. So please decide carefully whether this episode is for you. That said, if you are up for it, I think it's an important conversation to be had. And my guest today, Bistra, speaks very powerfully on the subject. Part of my experience making this podcast has been, inevitably, that I have to listen to myself speak quite a lot. And through the editing process, there are, of course, points where I cringe and wish I had expressed myself differently. If I'm lucky, that's something I can edit out. But if not, I just have to live with the fact that we all struggle to express ourselves perfectly. In this episode, I consistently refer to the victims or survivors of domestic abuse as she. And looking back, I wish I had used the gender-neutral they instead. On that note, at one point in the conversation, I argue vehemently that gender is an essential part of the domestic violence issue, only to go back on myself two minutes later and say gender is less important than the crime itself. All of this is to say that conversations on difficult issues are difficult. I welcome your disagreements and nuances. Please join in the conversation on Instagram or send me an email. Anyway, on with the show. My guest today is Bistra. Bistra has been teaching English for the past three decades and has experience working in public high schools, international schools, private language schools, and most recently, for herself online. She helps students with an intermediate to advanced level of English confidently speak their minds in global debates. Originally from Bulgaria, she now lives in Sicily with her Italian husband, When not teaching, you'll find her traveling, taking long walks in the countryside, and having meaningful conversations with folk from around the world. She is a passionate advocate of the growth mindset and is always looking to keep learning. The video she chose to talk about on today's Deep Talk is called Walking on Eggshells and was co-created by Rosie Jarvis and Annie LaVespa. It's all about coercive control, a form of domestic abuse in the UK. So, Bistra, thank you very much for joining us and for choosing such an important topic to talk about today. 
Could I get you to start us off by telling us what this video is about? Yes. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. It is a 16-minute documentary about this often misunderstood, overlooked, underrepresented issue of coercive control. To be honest, I hadn't even thought about this expression before. I hadn't heard it because it's it's often connected to domestic abuse. And, and we all know domestic abuse, but few people actually realize that there's there's a huge, like a great level of coercive control involved in domestic abuse. So yeah, the video describes what domestic abuse and coercive control is and um, also interviews real survivors of domestic abuse and their testimonies are absolutely horrifying. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and um, a lot of the victims still have to deal with the long-term trauma uh, even after leaving their abusers. So the video um, interviews some domestic abuse educators as well, campaigners, clinical social workers, psychotherapists who all provide very practical advice on how to confront this issue and how to support victims in their day to, on a day-to-day -day level. I think because I know that you and I have spoken about this topic before and the question that often comes up and is raised in this video as well is if it's so bad why don't the victims just leave? Exactly. And something which I found very helpful to think about that the video mentions is what they call the cycle of abuse. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes, that's actually a huge uh, reason why these women remain in, in an abusive relationship even for decades. It's called the cycle of abuse. And basically it all starts with the tension building. This is the first stage. Uh, when communication breaks down and there's usually silent treatment and the victim is walking on eggshells all the time. Yeah. Then there's the incident. That's the second stage when the verbal, emotional or physical abuse takes place. And then this is the most powerful stage that actually stops victims from leaving. It's called reconciliation, although I'm not sure that's the right name for it, but um, this is when the abuser might apologize, you know, make excuses. It's usually blaming the victim, gaslighting the victim. It's, it's her fault or, you know, blaming some external factors. But sometimes it could be a sincere apology as well with I love you, with some gifts, you know. And in that particular stage, this is where the victim feels this, this hope for change. And thinks, oh, you know, maybe things will be different. Uh, he's sorry, you know, he's going to change. Then comes the calm. Uh, this is the third, the fourth uh, stage. I call it the calm before the storm. Yeah. Uh, where the abuse is seemingly forgotten, but tension mm -hmm. starts building up again until, you know, again, the victim walks on eggshells and, and then it goes on and on and on. So this plus all the logistical barriers that victims yeah. uh, go through, for example, you know, their, their phone, their online activities being monitored, they're completely isolated from family and friends, their movement is being controlled. So that makes it even more difficult for them to take first step and leave. Something that really struck me, especially about those, those final two stages of the cycle of abuse, the reconciliation and then the calm I think that's something that people even if they've never been 
in a domestic abuse situation, they've never been in a domestic, um, an abusive relationship, we can relate to because all of us have been in situations that have been really bad and we felt like we should leave, but then it kind of calms down for a bit and you sort of stick around for another six months. I'm thinking particularly maybe of jobs. Jobs yeah. where it's not going anywhere or our boss is really mean to us or we don't like a colleague and we really, we know that we should leave. But then you get a bit of good feedback or you have a nice week and mm-hmm. that hope that, oh, maybe actually it will, it's okay, maybe it'll get better, keeps yeah. us going. And it's it's obviously not the same thing, but I think that that hope in what is mm-hmm. you know actually a really bad situation is something we can all relate to. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you raised this up because it's actually common for other toxic relationships um, at the workplace, even among friends. Yeah. You can have toxic controlling friends. And then combined as well, as you you mentioned, some of the logistic Mm -hmm. issues that that these women face. And it reminded me of a conversation I was having with my brother and his partner just this weekend. They're thinking about moving in together Mm -hmm. and potentially buying a place. But so much of their decision making is not really how much do we love each other? Do we want to live together? How wonderful is this? It's really the logistics of living in an expensive city. Well, if we get a two bed together, we can maybe save money. You know, like we're all subject in some regard to external circumstances affecting our decision making. That's true. And from the outside it might seem obvious that the difficulties are kind of worth it to escape Mm -hmm. an abuser but actually when you're in it the kind of pros and cons can feel quite even sometimes I think. Yeah and especially difficult when you have this feeling of hopelessness that oh where can I go you know because you are isolated entirely from the rest of the world Uh, so you think there's no escape that makes it very very hard. Also, another thing, especially when it comes to victims of domestic abuse, is the way police reacts to reports. Even if you report the abuser, you always have to provide as a victim, how ironic is that, some sort of uh, an evidence for your physical abuse. You, you need to bear some signs of physical abuse. Think about it until 2015 coercive control wasn't even recognized as a criminal offense. It was recognized in England and Wales in the year 2015 as an, as an illegal act. Then in 2019, it was made illegal in Scotland. And then in, only in January last year in Northern Ireland. And I, if, if I'm not mistaken, there's only one country in the European Union that actually makes coercive control an illegal a criminal offense, and that's France. So there's still a lot to do to offer protection to the victims. Because even if they reach a hotline and they call for help, or they, they manage to speak to a social worker or a friend or someone, there's not actual protection and security for them. They're left with their abuser even after they denounce the crime. It feels... And I'm imagining, of course, but the feeling of finally taking the step to go to the police or to tell a friend or to try to leave, I'm instantly in a kind of sort of horror movie mode of, you know, 
suddenly being being trapped again the people aren't listening to you they say go home mm-hmm. your home isn't safe there's there really doesn't seem to be yet a kind of safe and also attractive way out because mm-hmm. one of the experts interviewed kind of describes some of the shelters that she has visited she says they're like prisons yeah and suddenly the victim of abuse sometimes they're with their children you know in a really really vulnerable situation are punished in many ways for having done the right thing and for having done the brave thing Mm -hmm. being controlled yet again absolutely absolutely and and even those who live or manage to to get to that separation stage it's not the turning point for them like a lot of people think oh once she leaves the abuser it's over but it's not because then he continues to you know persecute them uh, one of the the victims was um, uh, testifying about her ex-partner finding her every time she changed house and she had to move again and again escaping from him so there's no protection even after that separation stage not to mention the post-traumatic stress disorder that they have to deal with for years after it's over. I'm not sure of the statistics. I should have looked them up before our conversation, but I know that I have read somewhere that a large proportion of the women who are later killed by partners, Mm. which is a disgustingly high number in itself, a huge proportion of them are killed after they've broken up. Right. All the femicides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is very sad. But I'm glad that people now talk about this more often. And um, there is a way out. A a lot of the social workers and the psychotherapists, they say, even if you are still in that relationship, you can contact a person and and start collecting evidence. This is the first step. Uh, because unfortunately you have to provide evidence. Like even with rape victims, it, it's on them to provide evidence. It's not on the, on the perpetrator. Yeah. So yeah. how unfair is that? It, it does seem ridiculous. I mean, I know that there are lots of kind of movements to try to get rape in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what the technical term would be, but kind of prosecuted in a slightly different way. Because Mm -hmm. there is an understanding that evidence isn't readily available in the way that it is for other crimes. Um, Yes. Yes. But even then, that's still so difficult. And I can understand it as well from a how can we how can we charge someone with something? How can we find someone guilty without evidence that goes against so much of what many countries justice system Mm -hmm. is kind of built up around? Yeah. Um, so it, it does take, I think, a fundamental re like a shift mm-hmm. in how we see crime and how we see evidence and how we see guilt. Um, right. And I, I understand the logistical difficulties, but it just seems this is such an unfortunately common situation that people find themselves in, particularly women. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not only women, but it is of majority course. women. Um, <laughs> yes that it seems like surely this this problem of how we categorize and how mm-hmm. we prosecute is one that is big enough to be tackled, exactly to deserve being yeah. tackled yeah i think this this is the step 
that we need to take first in order to to deal with the the whole problem mm-hmm. uh, like legally it has to be recognized and and some changes have to be made in the law yeah the way the crime is um prosecuted yeah yeah i have read somewhere again i i should have looked up the official statistics that something like five percent or less than five percent of rape victims Mm -hmm. like actually get justice through the law right and think about how many don't even get reported like the majority of crimes don't even get reported to the police Mm -hmm. for those same logistic reasons yeah yeah there was an excellent show um produced by the bbc last year and as I say, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I can't, but I'll pop it in the episode description afterwards. Um, and it was about a woman who was date raped. She goes to report it to the police. And it really just highlighted very powerfully how unpleasant that whole situation was. Mm-hmm. And hers was one where actually her initial reporting goes quite smoothly. It goes as well as you would have hoped Mm -hmm. and then she goes back later to kind of follow it up and it's a different police officer and they don't take her seriously and you know it's constantly well could you go back to the beginning again oh my goodness it's like reliving reliving the whole thing again absolutely horrifying absolutely and the idea that that is you know kind of standard police procedure to get somebody Mm -hmm. to relive even if it was like a burglary I'm not sure I'd want to tell the story 10 times because that's upsetting and that's vulnerable. And, you know, your home has been um, violated. Mm -hmm. So take that up to the level of, of like sexual violence to then have to relive it is, is it seems so cruel Mm -hmm. on the part of the, of the police and yet so standard. That's just what we do. We have to tell the story 20 times. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard enough to talk to a psychiatrist about that. Yeah. Let, you know, imagine someone who does not actually believe you. Yeah. Uh, or is looking for reasons not to believe you. Uh, right, right. You know, very often um, the perpetrator is a police officer or a friend yeah. of a police officer or a father or a brother. Mm-hmm. So that makes it even more difficult. It's just another case for them to work on. Yeah. When I was looking at the video, um, I kind of scrolled down just to look at some of the comments, which I think we all know mm. we shouldn't do on the internet. No, I do it all the time, actually. <laughs> Terrible decision. Um, yeah, and not always were, pleasant to read. No, there were a couple of comments. They seemed, most most of the comments, of course, were very positive towards the video. They said, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. They complimented the production, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there were a few suggesting you know that men are victims too as Mm. if the creators of the video hadn't focused on that although they have they explicitly have a line that Mm -hmm. says it can happen to anyone but it's disproportionately women Um, and I just wondered what your take on the kind of hashtag not all men Mm. you know sort of refusing to see the gender divide in domestic abuse and and convinced that you know 
let's say 10% of victims are men means that we should talk about men equally in this conversation. Do you, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you, where do you think this comes from? (laughs) Well, men are victims too. Of course they are. Everybody can be a victim, of course, if control, because it happens to everyone, regardless of their, their sex, their age, their status, their religion, ethnicity, whatever. But when you have a video like that, that talks about the majority of the victims being women and, and somebody says, not all men, like, honestly, it gets on my nerves because yeah. it's just so, I find it so insensitive. It's like mm-hmm. shifting the discussion, taking away the focus from the real problem, which let's be honest, is male violence. All right. Male violence, male dominance, the patriarchy, uh, this uh, misconception, cultural misconception that we have about what masculinity actually is. So this just puts the, the, the focus on men's ego yeah. and, and away from the actual problem. Uh, and that really aggravates me to be honest because it detracts it diminishes what women really feel um it sort of you know belittles their oppression absolutely and i i think it also it gets in the way of us potentially finding solutions because if the problem is gendered that Mm -hmm. to me suggests that the solution is gendered or at least has to take the gender divide into consideration um I say that not having a solution of course but to me it seems Mm -hmm. obvious that if you have a problem that affects one group of people disproportionately then clearly the solution has to take that into account right and by refusing to see that you're getting in the way of the solution exactly it it almost feels to me as if they are they feel threatened like their Mm -hmm. their privileges are being threatened uh because now women are given more rights well, not more rights, equal rights. Yes. Uh, women are being told that, no, it's not true that they belong in the kitchen. No, it's not true that they have to be submissive and obey. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, a an instinctive reaction of preserving our male privileges to some extent. I don't know, perhaps I'm being extreme, but uh, that's how it feels to me. Because if that happened to a man, I mean, he's got more power. He's got more possibilities to um, to get saved. If a man goes to the police and reports about abuse, I think he will be looked at differently. I mean, I don't, I don't know. So I'm just supposing now. But I wonder if male victims of domestic abuse, whether they are, you know, the perpetrator is a man or a woman um I wonder if there's perhaps a higher level of vulnerability in in men coming forward because to be a victim goes so against traditional views of masculinity yeah there's more shame involved I think but yeah I, I absolutely agree that it's not all men and I agree that some men are victims as well um so we this is why we shouldn't talk about um you know, gender, but talk about the crime in general. Right. Everyone, everyone can be a victim of that crime. Yeah. So it goes back to the prosecution side of things. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
Bistra, I think it's clear to most people that this sort of violence, whether it be physical or emotional, doesn't happen, you know, on a first date. Because if it did, presumably the <laughs> the victim yes. would leave straight away. What yes, do you yes, think of some of what do you think are some of the red flags that can occur perhaps early in a relationship that mm-hmm. might indicate that that this relationship is in a bit of danger? Um yeah, that's that's a great question. I'm very happy you asked this. Um because coercive control is is ultimately about owning or controlling the victim and it, it's not always obvious at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, coercive control is is very insidious, calculated, um, very sneaky and subtle. So sometimes you confuse that with love. You think, oh, he loves right. me. That's why he's jealous of me, for right. example. Okay. okay? Yeah. So um, some of the signs or the red flags that um, we need to be careful about, in especially at the early stages of a relationship, is... Um, if you are being isolated in any way from mm-hmm. from your family, from your friends, this is a huge red flag. Um, also, you know, deprived of basic needs like food, medication, uh, comfort in general, uh, sleep, sleep deprivation. If you are financially deprived of your own money, right, uh, or when you have to account for what you spend your money for. Uh, this is also a huge red red flag. Like, oh, why did you buy this dress? Couldn't you like? How many more dresses do you need? You know, right, of comments course. comments like that. Or right. why why do you wear makeup? Why are you dressed like that? Mm-hmm. Um, also, just losing control of everyday life, where you go, who you see, what you wear, what you buy. Um, if he threatens you with violence. Um, if you don't behave in a certain way, like you need to cook, for example. Uh, I told you I don't like this dish. You need to make this dish for me. Um, Also controlling your reproductive choices, uh, your sexual health, telling you whether or not and when you should take contraceptives, for example. Uh, Controlling where you work, what type of work you do. or stopping you from going to work or stopping you from studying. But we know this happens um, all the time in some communities. This list is, when you read it as, you know, stopping somebody from working, it sounds so stark. It sounds so like, of course, that's a bad thing. And yet you can see how in conversation it might come across as loving. You know, yeah. you hate your job. You're so tired at the end of every day. Come mm-hmm. on, wouldn't I can I can pay for you? Like I can afford yeah. things. You don't yeah, need yeah. to work. Exactly. And it's loving and it's kind. Um mm-hmm. but obviously if it particularly if it comes with some of the other aspects of control, do right. do mm-hmm. seek to eventually isolate you and take yeah. you away and- from potentially routes of escape. Exactly. Just just making you financially dependent yeah on another person and and very often we women feel the pressure of having to stay home and and you know look after the kids and look mm-hmm. after the house and and yeah. we feel like we're making the right decision and we falsely think that oh it's our choice but is it really yeah. 
because there are two parents, right? Um, so yeah, things like that. Also monitoring all of your activities, your movements, communication, like if they control your email, your phone. Um, very often the use of spyware is involved. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> then constantly criticizing you you know, humiliating you, uh, intimidation, degradation, name calling, all these things are a huge part of coercive control behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, property damage, which is actually another criminal offense. Like, Can you give me an example? Like destroying your computer or, or smashing your phone uh, oh. or, you know, ripping up all your beautiful dresses i mean these that. i would hope that these are kind of later on i would hope that if yeah. this happened early in a relationship people wouldn't yet feel attached enough to leave but yeah gosh yeah so any any kind of intimidation any kind of threat of violence even if there is no physical violence if there is a threat and the victim feels fear, that is a huge red flag. You need to run away. And just before we end, speaking of running away, how do we do that? What are the options? Obviously, it will vary from country to country and region to region, but what are the kind of options for a woman who has made the decision, yes, I need to get out? Mm -hmm. Well, I suggest talk to someone. Okay. Talk to someone because it's um, very difficult to deal with this alone. You're scared, uh, you're hopeless, but if you talk to someone, you get help from outside. Uh, very often it's uh, specialized help. People who have helped other victims survive. So they can, they can tell you exactly what you do. Um, mm -hmm. There are hotlines in every country. Sometimes in your region, there, there could be another uh, phone number specifically for that region uh, where they can give you practical tips. Uh, they can give you the address of probably refugee houses where mm -hmm. you can stay temporarily. Uh, simply starting to collect evidence, I think, is also a, a step forward. Yeah. yeah. Collect evidence of abuse, um, if you can, recordings. Um, Although, of course, collecting that does potentially pose a risk to yeah. you if, it, if it were found. Yeah. I think but, what, what you mentioned about talking to someone, yeah. one of the victims interviewed in the video refers to um, a questionnaire she was given after she finally reported mm -hmm. the crimes. And it took answering these questions about coercive exactly. control for her to see it from the mm -hmm. outside and for her to go, oh, my gosh, this isn't normal. Yeah, this is this is abuse. And I think that is potentially the most important part of talking to someone is exactly. to have it confirmed that mm -hmm. this is not OK and that that doubt in your head, that's that's real. Yeah, um, because obviously your your perpetrator, the victim, uh, the the perpetrator is doing everything that they can mm -hmm. to make you feel like this is what you deserve and that this is, if not normal, then not normal because you are worse than normal. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I really like um, the final words in the video. One of the victims, when asked um, if you could go back and change something, like what would you tell your yourself? And uh, it, it really moved me. This I think this was the most uh, touching moment in the video. And she says, every single day now that I wake up and I, I don't see his face, I don't hear his voice, I can't explain to you the gratitude. Uh, and she, she said, you almost wish that you could shake every single woman in that state and just say, it's going to be okay. You can make it. It's going to be okay. You don't have to tolerate that. So, um, yeah, just realizing that it's, it's going to be okay. And yeah. there's a way out. I think that's the perfect note to end our conversation okay. on. <laughs> Bistra, thank you again for agreeing to do this podcast. Thank you for picking such a powerful topic. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure. My thanks once again to Bistra for choosing such an important topic and such an engaging video to talk about. If you or anyone you know is in a situation that you believe is unsafe or simply unhappy, know that you can get help. In the UK, I can recommend Women's Aid and Refuge as two charities who can offer advice on steps you can take to get out of the situation. As Bistra said earlier, there will be specialist charities where you live as well. A change of topic now before we say goodbye. Transcripts. You'll probably know by now that you can get the transcripts for every episode of Deep Talk on my website. The first episode's one is free, and then you can get the transcripts for the rest of the season for just £8. They take me approximately a gazillion hours to edit, so trust me when I say that this is a bargain. I've had some folk asking me how to best use the transcripts, so here are three things that you can do with them. The first is to simply listen and read at the same time. This can not only help with your understanding of the ideas, but also draw your attention to how spoken English is constructed. It's pretty messy. You'll notice that I've included all our repetitions and self-corrections in the transcript. The second is to take a small section of the podcast and try to transcribe it. That simply means to write down everything you hear. You can use the transcript to check how accurate you were. Finally, you can use the transcript to read along with the podcast, just a small section. Try to match our rhythms and pronunciations. It's not so much about copying how we speak as experimenting with your own voice and trying out different ways of speaking. That's three, but there are plenty more. I'd love to know how you've been using the transcripts to these episodes and how they've helped you. That's it for today. Thanks once again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've been Rhiannon. This has been Deep Talk. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>